0: If you are joining us for the first time today, we are in a series titled Together, and as a recap, we have been talking about how we as a church exist to make a difference for one more. We have said throughout this series that everything we do around this place, all of our energy, all of our passion, all of our prayers and all of our resources, go to this idea that we believe that God is calling us, based on the Great Commission, to be a church that not only brings the good news that is the story of Jesus to people for the very first time, but makes a difference in the lives of those those of us that have already professed to follow him as we go deeper into our intimate relationship with him and get sent out Into the world to make him known and famous everywhere. And because of this, we have said that the local church, not just our local church, but every expression of the local church through the last several thousand years has always thrived and been at its best when it has been bold when it has done big, bold, dreaming, risk-taking things. And that's why we've said as a church that we want to be the type of church that is big, dreaming, kingdom-minded, bold-thinking, risk-taking people because God loves to use the ordinary, everyday people of this world to do amazing things for his kingdom. And so we said last, the last couple of weeks as we began this series that it's not just a series, but it's also a campaign, a together campaign, where over the next three years as a church, our goal is to raise $7 million above and beyond our normal operating budget. And we believe that we're gonna use this $7 million in three strategic areas that God is calling us to. The first one, as a multi-site church, we believe that the way we do church is to not just build massive buildings where everyone comes to us, but to send out into new communities and new neighborhoods and new cities to be gospel-centered hubs for those those neighborhoods and making local impacts. So we wanna be a church that by the year 2030 plants three new campuses in our regional area. We also said that as a church, we have $1.3 million in debt right now. And our goal is over the next three years to to eliminate all of that debt, to free up even more uh, money in our operating budget, to allow us to continue uh, annually to make more bold, kingdom-minded steps as God leads us to. And third, we said that we want to spend about a million dollars updating some of our technological and physical spaces across all of our campuses as they are in need of some refresh and updates to help us better shepherd those spaces to reach people who are coming in for maybe the very first time. Now... If you missed over the last couple weeks, I would encourage you to head to our website at themount.org, and you'll even find a webpage there called our Together page, where you'll find all sorts of information and resources uh, pointing you towards this campaign that we are on. There's a a short video you can watch, there's a a digital booklet, there's a 21-day prayer devotional that you can jump into on week three, which is where we're at. We would love for you to do that. If you are on one of our physical campuses today, and maybe you missed the campaign booklet that we gave out last week, when you exit any of the spaces you're at, you will see those booklets there. I encourage you to grab one, to take it home, to begin reading it, and even begin praying, asking the Lord how he might have you participate in this campaign with us. And like I said from the very beginning, while this series and this campaign is about money, it's not just about money. It's about so much more. It's about what we believe about the local church, what we believe about the church being the hope of the world when it is bold, when it takes obedient steps of faith to reach new people. This this series, this campaign is about what we believe that God has given our mission in this moment of his redemptive history for us to live faithfully and obediently and do what he's asking us to do. This this is about what we believe about God and our place in history. It's about so much more than just money. It's about generosity and our spiritual growth. Why? Because generosity, and I've said this before, but generosity is is a vital part of our spiritual formation, in the same way that, that scripture reading or, or prayer or, or journaling or, or serving in the local church are all areas and avenues of our spiritual formation. Living a lifestyle of generosity is not something that I want from you. It's something that as your pastor I want for you. In fact, as we've gone through this campaign leading up to it, most of my time has been spent praying the very same prayer that Paul prays for the church in Corinth when he writes to them in 2 Corinthians, reflecting back on how using the the Macedonian church as an example. He says this in chapter 8, which is a whole chapter on generosity, but he says them in the church in Corinth, he says, but since you excel in what? What do they excel in? He says, but since you excel in everything... And we could be left to interpret what that means, but he unpacks it for us. And he says, since you excel in everything, you excel in your faith, you excel in your speech, you excel in your knowledge of God, your, your theos, you excel in your complete earnestness, you excel in the love we have kindled in you. Since you excel in all of these various and different areas of your spiritual life and your spiritual maturity, he says, since you excel in all of those, see that you also excel and this grace, which is an interesting word for that, this grace of giving. Paul says, you, you excel in so many areas of your spiritual life. I want you to excel in this grace of giving. Why? Why does Paul want them to do that? Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle and think about money. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 6 when he says this, For where your treasure is, there your what? Your, there your heart Will be also. Where your treasure goes, your heart goes. The things that your money go towards are the things you think about. And this is why from the very beginning, yes, our goal is $7 million over three years. But from the very beginning, we said that our goal is 100% engagement. Our our dream, our hope, our prayer is that every single person who calls the mount their home would be engaged in some level or another with this campaign over the next three years. And maybe you're here today and you're just checking us out. You're, You're unsure about this whole Jesus and Christian thing. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you just wandered by or maybe you are like just picking a church and you haven't made up your mind yet, that's great. We are so glad you are here. If you want to be engaged, we welcome that. But what I'm saying when I say 100% engagement is for those of us that call this place our home, where we worship and we grow and we serve and we learn and we love in this place. Now, I I know when I say that, that there are some of you who might be like instantly thinking, "That's, that's great, Adam. Like, There's a connection between my spiritual life and finances. I I get that. Where my heart goes, my treasure, or where my treasure goes, my heart goes. I get that. You want 100% engagement. I get that, but I'm just not at a place where I could participate. I just, I'm not there. Like there's not, there's not enough margin in my life right now. I don't, I don't have the space. I don't, I don't have enough of something right now. I don't have the resources to participate in this lifestyle of generosity. I just can't Adam. I get that, I, I do. I remember very vividly a season in my life where I felt the same way. I remember a season in my life where I felt like, man, if I, one day, like when I, when I have more, then I can be generous. When I, when I have enough, right? Because I thought, and maybe you've thought this as well, I thought that, that generosity and living a generous lifestyle was really kind of a, a wealthy person's game and it was the people who had an abundance that were able to participate and I believe that. It's interesting, uh, Dr. Famita Handy from the University of Pennsylvania, she works for their social policy and kind of, uh, she, she runs kind of a generosity research think tank for them. And so a secular sociologist, after doing years and years and years of research on generosity trends and what makes people more generous and less generous and all these things, she said this, and I quote, take a look at this. It says, if you can't be generous when you have nothing, you won't be generous when you have anything. In other words, don't miss this. Generosity is for everyone. It's not just a wealthy person's game. It's for everyone, not just for those of us that think we can afford it. And the Bible teaches this as well. When Paul's writing to that church in Corinth and he's reflecting back on the Macedonians and their faithfulness, he says this about them. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, Their overflowing joy, that doesn't always go together, right? They they were in in a dark, deep trial. It was painful and difficult. But in the midst of that, in the midst of all this chaos in their life, they had overflowing joy. And they suffered extreme what? And their poverty welled up into rich what? Generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Here's why this is important. For many of us, we think generosity or, or living a lifestyle of generosity or the, the spiritual discipline of generosity is about our capacities. When we have enough, we can give and we can participate. But just like every other area of our spiritual life, for instance, we would never say, you know what, like, I don't really pray at all, I'm waiting till I have enough time to pray. I don't really read my Bible. I'm waiting till there's enough margin in my schedule and then I'll begin reading my Bible. I don't really serve in the local church. I'm waiting till my life is less chaotic and I have more of my time together, then I'll be willing to serve. No, 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 it's not about our capacities, it's about our priorities. And we said this last week, for those of you that were here, we looked at Colossians chapter 1, and we talked about how Jesus is the firstborn. He is supreme. He is the creator of everything, sustainer of everything, and in him all things hold together. And because of that, he demands, he desires, he is preeminent, the first, the priority in our lives, in every area of our life, not just the ones that are convenient and safe. And so, remember, this campaign is more than about money. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be. If you're using the Mount app, you can look for the sermon notes right there in it where you can get scripture references and you can get points and you can even take your own notes. If you're using a new version or a Bible app, you can look for it there. If you have nothing, you can just follow along with the screens with us. But we're going to look at this story, this moment where Jesus has just finished a rather long, kind of lengthy discourse to his original 12 followers, his disciples. And what he's been talking to them about, he's been warning them about the dangers of a religious group known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, for those of you that maybe are unfamiliar with the biblical story here, is the Pharisees were the guys in first century Judaism who were considered to be the elite of the elite. They were the guys that everyone wanted to be like. They were the most knowledgeable about Scripture, the Torah. They they knew everything there was to know about the rules and the regulations and the 700 or so commandments. They were the guys who were sacrificing more than anyone else. They were the guys who were so obedient and disciplined. They were the guys that everyone wanted to be because of their, their piety, their religiousness. They were the guys who were close to God and knew God, and everyone wanted to be just like them. But Jesus in this lengthy discourse in Matthew and Mark chapter 12 he's telling his disciples that that's not actually the case And he he says some specific things about these Pharisees. He calls them corrupt religious leaders who who walk around in their fancy robes. They're they're important. They want people to see them. They're they're displaying their wealth and their sense of importance. He says they, they try to get the most important seats at banquets and dinners because they want everyone to know that they are a priority. They might be first. They might be significant. And he says this weird phrase, and he doesn't really unpack it, but he says they cheat the widows out of their homes, whatever that looks like. And he also says they offer lengthy prayers. They want the attention and the publicity of being people who are so holy and praying so great. And Jesus tells his disciples in this discourse in Mark chapter 12 to watch out for these people who are the the blessed people. And now... So many times, not not all the time, but so many times what I love about when Jesus teaches is he always kind of follows it in this certain way. He he may he may tell a story, he may give some commands or a teaching, and then in an unrelated, what will seem unrelated is he will go and do something with his disciples, and maybe they have a moment after doing that where they're like, oh, this is reflecting back on what he just taught us. Or maybe he does something first, and then he teaches them reflecting back. And so what we see Jesus doing is he just went through this lengthy discourse telling them about about the dangers of these religious elites who are out for attention and all of these things. And then he just kind of leaves. And it says that he goes to the temple in Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 is where we'll pick up. It says this, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. And what did he do? He, let's try this again. What did he do? He watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. This, this is fascinating to me. Jesus goes and he takes this. he just got done with this discourse about the dangers of the religious elite and he takes them to the temple and he has them set down and he just begins watching what people are doing around the offering area. And the offering area at that time in first century Israel would have been kind of this, this courtyard space and there would have been 13 of these receptacles lining somewhere in the courtyard. And the receptacle would have looked like a like a trumpet that came down into a box. And the idea here was because they didn't have paper money, they had gold, silver, copper, different weights, different measures of how they would use their money. So you would go and when you went to make your offering, you would dump it or drop it or empty your sack into this trumpet-like thing. And you can imagine it would be loud and it would clang, 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 clang. clang, And as it fell, and then with a thunk, it would hit the bottom of the bucket. And the idea was, That every single person who was there at the place of offering would not only see but hear the offering that you were making. They would know how much it was, how important it was. They may look at you and gasp and be like, oh, so religious, so awesome. They may clap or they may be like, that was not very much. I don't understand. They would be able to judge your gift in those moments. And so Jesus sits down and watches. And then he says this in the rest of verse 41. Many rich people threw what? Threw in? Which makes sense, right? They're rich. They're going to throw in large amounts. They have wealth. They have abundance. They're going to put in large amounts. It's going to make money. It's going to clang. It's going to boom, boom, boom. And it's going to make all this noise. And maybe it's, you know, like when it gets stuck in those things and it's like rolling around like this. And it's just going to be, everyone's going to notice it and they're going to see it. Verse 42 continues. But a poor widow came and put in two what? Two very... Two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So this poor widow shows up. How do we know she's a widow? Maybe, maybe the way she was dressed. Maybe she had certain clothing that symbolized or let people know her status as a widow. Maybe it's when she showed up in the courtyard, everyone around began whispering and talking about her and pointing at her and wondering Maybe it's the very fact that Jesus in this moment is fully human and fully divine, fully God. And he knew before time ever existed that this widow was going to be there in that moment and make that offering. And he wanted the visual that came right after the teaching he just gave to his disciples. And so this widow shows up and gives two very small copper coins. Maybe the translation of scripture you're using, it might say she gave two mites. It might say she gave two leptas. There may be a note at the bottom. A lepta, just in case you're wondering, for the value of what she gave. A lepta was a small denomination in the Roman Empire. And it was actually the smallest denomination that could exist. It was so light and so small that you could almost bend it. It was made of copper and you could almost bend it. It was so thin and had so little substance. Most scholars would say that an average day worker in first century Israel would make around $30 a day. That was the day's wage for working. And two leptas would have been one 64th of a day's wage. This is a very small amount of money. So Jesus sees this and look what happens next. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, what does he say? Truly I tell you, This poor widow has put what? Well, that that doesn't make any sense. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. I mean, imagine being the disciples in this moment. It's like, Jesus, are you blind? Like, we're all, we're all sitting here. Everyone just watched. These people are dumping in buckets. They're, they're emptying their bags. And are, are, are you deaf? Can you not hear Jesus? They're clanging, making all this noise. Their thing's still spinning around, and she dropped two little pennies in, pennies that are so light that when they hit the bottom of the pile, they might have not even made any noise because they're so thin, almost paper thin. Jesus, there is no way that her offering, her gift, her sacrifice was more than those other people. So I don't know about you, when I read this, like one of the questions I ask myself is like, why was her generosity more? Why why did Jesus say her gift was more? And let me just give you a couple reasons that I think we can find if we kind of backtrack and look at this passage in a little more detail. And the first thing, if you're taking notes is this, is generosity isn't limited by our excuses. Her generosity was not limited By her excuses. Our generosity should not be limited by our excuses. Check out her excuse, Mark 12, 42. But a poor what? What was she? She was a widow. A poor widow. Now, that might not mean much to us. We may pass over it. But in first century Jewish tradition under the patriarchal system that they lived in, a widow was one of the lowest in the social classes that you could possibly be. Because of their patriarchal system, being a woman meant that when you were married, all of your property, all of your wealth, all of your assets, anything that generated money or income or had value belonged to your husband. And if your husband died, all of your assets, all of your wealth, all of the things in life that had value immediately went to your oldest son. And your oldest son could decide whether you could live with him or not or be out on your own. And if you happen to be a marriage where you did not have any kids yet, or maybe you were never gonna have kids, if your your husband died, all of the assets, all of the money, all of everything that had any monetary value went to the oldest male in the family, which might mean a brother, an uncle, a cousin, a second cousin, a guy who lives on the other side of the world, you never know. But the point is this woman had nothing. No property. Not only this, but here she is at the very temple that according to Old Testament laws and religious duties and obligations, the temple was the place that if you were a widow who had nothing, the temple was the place that you were told to go to on a daily basis to be given sustenance and allowance to be able to live your life. So here she is as this woman at the very place that's supposed to be providing for her. And I want to pause for just a minute because as we talk about this idea of being generous with this goal of $7 million, I recognize that there may be some of you in the room today or watching online or at our Fredericksburg campus and you may be feeling, Adam, there is no possible way I could participate in this campaign because I can't even pay my rent. I'm worried about my car payment or my daycare payment. I just don't think I can make it because of my situation. And let me just say, one of the things I love about this church called the Mount is that we have years and years and years of people who have been faithful and generous. And we have a benevolence fund for people just like you. People that we want to come alongside and help you if you call this place your home, to help you in a rough situation or circumstance, much like this widow, so that you can get back on your feet. But this widow, let me, let me just she had every excuse in the world why she didn't need to give this offering. There was no moral obligation for her to put money in that offering plate. There was no religious duty for her to put money in that offering plate. She had no legal requirement. In fact, she was a widow and had nothing. Not only that, she was at the very place that instead of giving them something, she should have been receiving something but, and check this out, don't miss this. She chose not to let her generosity be limited by her excuses. What's your excuse? What's your excuse? Adam, man, I, I just don't think I can take part in this campaign right now. Like, it's just... It's just not a good time for our family. Why couldn't you have done this next year or like six months? It's just, it's just not going to work for us. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to save up for a new car. We're, we're, we're trying to make sure that we, you know, get our college account where it needs to be. We're, we're trying to rebalance our 401K and our IRA. We've got this big expense coming up on our house. We want to remodel. We're thinking of buying a second home at the beach. We, we want to make sure that this next vacation is great. We've, we've got all these things going on. What's your excuse? Living a generous lifestyle is about priorities. Last week we said in Colossians 1, Jesus is the firstborn. He is the priority in everything. This widow had every excuse in the world. And she still chose to give. Second, Generosity requires a sacrifice. Her generosity required a sacrifice. Our generosity, our, our lifestyle of generosity should require a sacrifice on some level or another. Look back at verse 44 with me for a second. This is, uh, it says, they all, so he's talking about the, the wealthy people. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, the widow, out of her, what did she give out of? She gave out of her poverty. She put in everything. It was a sacrifice for her. Verse 42 says it this way. It says, but a poor widow came and put in what? What did she put in? Two Two small very copper coins. This is fascinating to me. Maybe you missed this. She didn't have to put in any coins. She also could have put in one. She chose to put in two. She could have kept them both. She could have kept one. She chose to put in two. And what you see is this attitude, this heart posture that mirrors what Paul is talking about when he's talking to the church in Corinthians about the church in Macedonia. We looked at it once, but I want you to see it again. In this context, it says, in the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able, even what, even beyond their ability they sacrificed for the kingdom of God now let's pause because I want to make very clear what this verse is not saying this verse is not saying that you should be so generous and give so much money away and be lifestyle of generosity in such an extent that you become poor and homeless That is not what it's saying. It's not saying give beyond your ability so that you have nothing left and you are desolate and destitute. No, no, no. It's not saying that. That would be reckless. And Scripture does not call you to any sort of reckless behavior. Scripture actually tells you to exercise wisdom. But what it is saying, what it does mean is that for many of us, there's this minimum expectation. And our life would be perfectly okay if we lived to the minimum expectation, But what Paul is trying to show us when he's reflecting on the church in Macedonia, what Jesus is trying to show us with this widow is there's the minimum expectation, but if you want to receive, and I don't know why, but if you want to receive this grace, this spiritual benefit that comes from sacrificing and going above and beyond, you will experience it through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. And giving sacrificially means that there should be things in your life that you are missing out on. And so maybe a question for you to think about. What are you missing out on because of your generosity? What are are you missing out on because of what you sacrifice? My wife, Kristen, and I have been married a little over 19 years now. And over the course of that 19 years, we have done our best, at times not as good as we would like, but we've done our best to practice the spiritual discipline of generosity. There have been seasons we we wish we could have done more. Looking back, we know we could have done more, but our selfishness got in the way at times maybe, but we, we have tried our best to do it. And one of the things that's interesting to me is if I reflect back on those 19 years, and, I, and I've never done this, but like, I'm sure if I was to take 19 years worth of generosity and add it all up, at least to us, maybe not to you, but to us, that would equal a significant sum of money. And I guarantee you, my retirement account would have a much better balance if I wouldn't have given that money away. My, my house payment would be much lower if I would not have given that money away. My truck, I told you last week that my truck, my, my old truck has 240,000 miles. And when it rains, sometimes water leaks in and drips on the seat that I have to sit in. My, if I wouldn't have given that money away, I might have a new truck by now. My kids love technology. If we hadn't given that money away, they may have had Apple Vision Pros by now for all I know. My wife, she loves to shop. If we hadn't given that money away, who knows what she could have shopped and bought. But I'll tell you this the joy and the grace that my family and I have found in sacrificing for the kingdom of God far outweighs a couple more dollars in my bank account, a new truck, some shopping, or a a lower mortgage, because there is joy in sacrifice. You see, so many of us When we think of sacrifice, we think this begrudging, like, oh, man, I got to sacrifice? Why a capital campaign now? Like, I don't want to sacrifice. But listen, there's joy in sacrifice. Those of you that are married, you know what it means to sacrifice your wants and your desires for your spouse. And to see them smile makes it all worth it. Those of you that have kids, man, parenting is hard. But you know those moments when you sacrifice your time and your resources and your energy and something to see your kids come alive, and it change their whole demeanor. There's joy in sacrifice. What are you missing out on because of your generosity? And lastly, generosity requires complete Trust. Her generosity required complete trust. Our generosity should require complete trust. Remember, this is more about our spiritual life than about money. And here's the the thing that I don't understand, but we see it over and over again in Scripture. Giving sacrificially has a way of increasing our trust in God. They, They work together. You get this, this sense with this widow, like she, she isn't living this generous lifestyle, putting that money in the offering because she feels convicted, or because she feels shame or guilt over it. She's not like they're like, oh, I got to take these coins like this because I wanna, no, she's not doing it. She's doing it, you get the sense she's doing it with a cheerful heart. And I just wanna make sure we're very clear on that as a church. If you leave here today, if you move through the next couple of years as we do this campaign, and you begin to feel bitter and frustrated and angry and guilt and shame over your level of generosity, please just stop giving. Your heart is more important than your wallet. I would much rather see you lean into God. But this woman, for her, she, she's willing to sacrifice. And what you sense is this idea that she's sacrificing Because through this sacrifice, through this letting go of things, it's deepening her faith and trust in God. And we see this, a great example of this is found in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, where we see another story, ironically, of another widow. And it's this story with Elijah, and the the Lord speaks to Elijah, and he says this to them in chapter 17, verses 8. It says, then the Lord said to Elijah, he says, go and live in the village of Seraphath near the city of Sidon. "'For I have instructed a widow there to feed you.' "'So he went to Seraphath. "'As he arrived at the gates of the village, "'he saw a widow gathering sticks, "'and he asked her, "'Would you please bring me a little water in a cup?' And as she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. I love this, right? Like, so here's the picture. He shows up and he sees this widow out gathering sticks and he says, hey, I'm so thirsty. Could you get me some water? And she's like, sure, I'll get you some water. And she starts to walk away. And those of you that have kids, you understand this. The moment your kids get you to go get something, oh, by the way, mom, can you make a sandwich while you're in there too, right? Like, so it's like she goes to get the water and he he yells out, he said, give me some bread. I, I need a sandwich. Can you make something for me? And look at her reply. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I do not have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. She says, I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. Why? So that my son and I can die. She says, Elijah, I I can't. I only have this little amount of flour and this little amount of oil I'm just making a fire so I can make this last loaf of bread so that me and my son can die of starvation. <laughs> Elijah has this, it seems unsensitive right here. Look what Elijah says to her. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Just go ahead and do what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Like you didn't even hear her, Right. Like, he doesn't acknowledge you won't die. He just says, don't be afraid, just make me some bread while you're at it. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, what? What is it? Let's try it. I need everyone's participation on this. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. What does the God of Israel say? There will always be flour and olive left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. In other words, this is not about money. This is a defining moment in this woman's life. Do I trust what I can see, the little flower and the little oil, or do I trust what the Lord says? Do I trust the amount that's in the bank? Do I trust what I, what I know of my bills, what I know of this? Do I trust what I know about what I look in my circumstances around me? Or do I trust what the Lord says? What do I believe? Look how it ends. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. And there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had, just as the Lord had promised. Here's the reality. This campaign is not about money. It is about you and I, as followers of Jesus, being stretched in the depth of our trust for God. So, just a question for you to think about what's stretching your trust? In your life right now, what is stretching your trust? Both of these widows, what I love about this is both of these widows serve as as a model for what it means to follow Jesus. Why? Because don't miss this. The call to follow Jesus is a call for absolute surrender and absolute sacrifice and absolute trust in every area of our lives, not just the ones we see and fit in our mold, but all the areas that God says something for our life. It is a call to trust And to step into the deep waters for him and be obedient in what he is calling us to. It's about our priorities, not our capacities. And so here's the deal. Every week of this series, I've asked you a different question. We've asked you to to do different things. And the first week we asked you, would you just begin seeking the Lord for the future, about partnering together with us as we move forward together, about where we're going Last week, we asked you, would you begin kind of seeking the Lord about what it might look like for you to to make him the priority, the first, the preeminent, the firstborn in the area of your finances and how you invest them? And the question for you today is this, what could you sacrifice so that your trust in Jesus is deepened? What could you sacrifice so that your trust in Jesus is deepened? Remember, our goal is 100% engagement. And I've said this before. That means that all of us can do something. Some of us can do more and a few of us can do the unthinkable. Because here's the thing about sacrifice. It's different for every one of us. What is sacrifice to me may not be sacrifice to you. What is sacrifice to the person next to you it may be so far off your radar you can't even imagine it. But all of us and do something. Some of us, we can sacrifice more than others. And a few of us, God may be asking you to sacrifice the unthinkable to do the unthinkable and the impossible in his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so... uh, Thankful that all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you give us examples of what it means to sacrifice and trust you. God, we think back in the Old Testament to the people who daily and annually had to literally physically do sacrifices just to be able to trust in your salvific faith. God, we think of the the disciples when you came to them on the shore, those were fishermen, and you asked them to sacrifice their livelihood, their future, and walk into the unknown by casting down their nets, not knowing if they would come back home one day and their entire world would be rocked, but they stepped in and sacrificed and trusted you. We thank you for these two widows who show us what it means to sacrifice as a way to deepen our faith and trust in you. As we continue praying just right now, not put finances out of your mind for just a second. Is there an area of your life that maybe you need to sacrifice to deepen your faith and trust in Jesus? In other words, what's what's holding you back from being all in with him? I just wanna give you a moment to think about that. As we continue praying, maybe you are here today and I just want to take the privilege and tell you about the greatest sacrifice ever made. Maybe you're unsure of this whole Jesus and church thing and you're, maybe you've been here, this is your first time, maybe you've been here for, for years. But let me just tell you the story that 2,000 years ago, God loved you so much that he sent his son, his only son, his firstborn son to live a perfect, sinless, holy life And then he paid the penalty of death as a sacrifice for you. You say, what do you mean? (laughs) Because you are a sinner. You are selfish. I am a sinner. I am selfish. We all are. And left to our own, we only care about ourselves. And that will leave us eternally separated from God. But Jesus' sacrifice makes us new by believing in him we defeat the grave and death and sin and not only have the abundant life now but we live for all of eternity in the presence of a loving father and today maybe for the first time you want to believe and trust in that sacrifice if that's you just right where you are with our eyes closed and heads bowed would you just slip up your hand If your hand is raised, just keep it up high. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I am a sinner. Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Be my king. Be my Lord. Jesus, save me. Amen.